This episode of the Religious Studies Project is brought to you in association with Equinox Publishing, uh, particularly the book Sensual Religion, Religion and the Five Senses, which is edited by Graham Harvey and Jessica Hughes. Um, Graham's a good pal of the RSP, and um, we're delighted to bring you a discount on this. If you go to equinoxpub.com and enter the code RELIGION, you'll get 25% off. So why not head over there right now? For now, on with the podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson, and coming to you live from Oslo... It's Christopher Carter. Hi there. Hello. Yes, we, we tried to record this in person in Edinburgh a couple of days ago and technology failed us. So now uh, we're trying out our new podcasting technology that we're hopefully going to be using a lot more. Talking of recording technology, <laughs> that's a terrible link. Um, <laughs> but we're going to go with it anyway. Yeah, well, let's just run with it. Um, we're going to go over to our recording, which Chris recorded at the EASR in Bern um, earlier this year. So we're very international. And it's an interview with Susanna Crockford on the subject of eco-spirituality, gender and nature. So let's pass right over. In some contexts, asking the question, what gender is nature, might provoke a condescending response of, of course, nature doesn't have a gender. Yet despite this naturalistic, get it, uh, response, <laughs> an enormous array of contemporary and historic discourses, we find nature being gendered, and in many cases, this gender is female. Is gender, as Sherry Ortner once argued, female to nature as ma- as male is to culture? Where does the discourse come from? How does this gendering of nature intersect with contemporary forms of spirituality and eco-spirituality and religion more generally? Why does it matter? And for whom? Joining me today to discuss these questions and more is Dr. Susanna Crockford of Ghent University. So first off, Susanna, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) We are recording in Bern at the European Association for the Study of Religion Conference, where Susanna just been delivering a paper earlier on called What Gender is Nature? An Approach to New Age Eco-Spirituality in Theory and Practice. And so I had the pleasure of being in the room. Um, but before we get to today's conversation, I'll just tell you that uh, Dr. Crockford's a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Literary Studies at Ghent University, where she works on the NARMESH, or Narrating the Mesh Project, investigating the contemporary narrative of the interrelations between humans and a large gamut of non-human realities, and its potential for staging, challenging, and expanding the human imagination of the non-human. And her research interests center on the use of ethnography to explore narratives of spirituality, millenarianism, and climate change. Her doctoral thesis was entitled After the American Dream, Political Economy and Spirituality in Northern Arizona, and it was awarded in July 2017 by LSE, um, following which she spent nine months as a research officer for INFORM, or the Information Network, on new religious movements. And she has a number of forthcoming articles and chapters on topics relevant to today's interview coming out in Religion, State, and Society, Correspondences, Novo Religio, and the Dictionary of Contemporary Esotericism. So watch this space. I suppose some of them might have changed from forthcoming to published by the time this goes out. Who knows? Probably. Probably. <laughs> Hopefully. You uh, never know. <laughs> yes, academic publishing is a wonderful, wonderful world. Um, we love it. We love it. <laughs> 
So we're going to get to your uh, your case study in Arizona soon, but first of all, gender, nature, eco-spirituality. Um, how'd you get here? How did I get here was very much through my field work um, because these were the kind of topics that came up when I was in Sedona uh, and other places in Arizona. People talked about nature in a very gendered way and it was very striking to me. Um, just how much these discourses came up. Um, so it was very much kind of an, an empirical relation, uh, interest. I didn't really set out to study kind of ecological issues or eco-spirituality. I mean, I thought nature would be relevant when I got to the field, uh, but I wasn't so concerned with gender. And it, it's kind of one of these topics that it was going to be in my the- thesis, and then I didn't have space. So I kind of pushed it to one side. And then for this conference, it kind of came back. And I was like, oh, yes, now I can write my thing about gender (laughs) (laughs) and eco-spirituality and how New Age spirituality kind of inverts this gender binary in a really, I think, quite interesting, but also problematic way. So that's that's how it came about. Yeah. How did you, well, more broadly, how did you end up in Arizona? That's a really good question. And I mean, there's several ways that I could date it back to. But let's just say, for the sake of simplicity, I ended up in Arizona because I wanted to do a project on contemporary esotericism. And I discovered hmm. Sedona, which is in Arizona, uh, through a quite tragic case, actually, of James Arthur Ray, who set himself up as kind of this spiritual guru, and he ran a sweat lodge as part of a longer Rainbow Warrior workshop where people paid $9,000 to go and kind of unleash your spiritual warrior within. And it was held in Sedona, and then three people died in this sweat lodge. It was in 2009, and I was reading about that in the news because I was doing a lot of work on shamanism at the time. And I was like, this is terrible. But then I was like, oh, there's this place called Sedona that's full of these new age people and full of these things that they called vortexes. That would be a great place for an ethnographic study on contemporary esotericism. So that, in a very brief form, is how I ended up in Sedona, Arizona, doing my field work. Mm. I could ask you now to introduce us to Sedona, but maybe I should say, first of all, because eco-spirituality is going to be coming up probably mm. throughout that introduction. So just, I know this is a very broad question, but in terms of the next 20 minutes, what are we meaning by eco-spirituality? And then we'll hear more about it. Yeah, so I'm going to define it in a really simple uh, way, which, you know, obviously some people might find simplistic, but finding nature is in some form divinized or finding divinity in nature and doing that outside of the framework of some kind of organized religion. So I think there's a difference between eco-spirituality and say, uh, I don't know, like the Pope's encyclical on climate change, for example, like you can be concerned about the environment as a mainstream Christian, but I don't think that's eco-spirituality because God specifically is not in nature for them. For people who are in some way engaged in eco-spirituality, the divine is in nature. It's pantheistic. And it comes up in lots of different forms. Paganism is obviously a really prominent one that people have probably heard of, Wicca. And it's also very prominent in New Age spiritualities that see nature as uh, part of the energy of the universe, but in, in a very kind of high vibrational form. So the energy 
of nature is one that you know has a very kind of high spiritual level so there's this very clear association between nature and spirituality and you know as we'll get on to women and femininity hmm and so it's not environmentalism necessarily no and that's actually one of the main points i was making today that just because you find spirituality in nature you think that nature has something to do with your understanding of god doesn't mean that you will actually engage in actions that might be considered environmentally friendly or ecologically engaged or in fact have anything to do with mitigating large-scale ecological problems like pollution and climate change these are separate things excellent yes and to the audio editors we're going to start banging the table <laughs> that's what we're gonna do <laughs> i just i i need to gesticulate it's all right it's all right hit, hit me instead of the table be fine. um so right let's let's set the scene then so sedona small town in arizona and what what makes it so interesting and, and the, you, you mentioned the vortexes earlier and things yeah so sedona is a fascinating town um it is in northern Arizona, uh, which is higher up than southern Arizona. So it's not kind of low desert with the big saguaro cactuses, which come to most people's minds when they think about Arizona. It's, it's up in the mountains. It gets cold in the winter. They even have snow sometimes. Um, but it is also still quite hot. Sedona has a, a river, which is quite rare in Arizona. So it has a fresh water source. So it has, these incredible kind of red rock canyons and it has a river running through it there's trees growing everywhere so it's very different from the rest of Arizona and it's this sense of landscape that is both striking and substantially different from that around it which I think kind of makes it stand up in human perception as something that you know this is different enough that I will perceive it as in some way maybe sublime or even something to do with the divine because a lot of people who live there think that Sedona is a sacred space, whether or not they're engaged in, in New Age spirituality. You know, people I spoke to there who were Christians said, you know, this is a place, you know, where God has kind of bestowed something special upon the human race because it, it is a very beautiful place. So it's a town of about 17,000 people. Uh, it is within the Red Rock Canyon. It has one main highway. And then another bit splits off to a, a slightly southern community that's called Village of Oak Creek. But they're all basically Sedona because they're all pretty much one place, even though municipally they're two different places. Um, and Sedona is a tourist resort. Um, it has a lot of kind of hotels and it has a lot of spas and timeshares. People go there to enjoy nature to go on holiday, a lot of people who own property there own it as a second home. There's even some kind of super rich people there, like uh, John McCain, who's the Republican mm. senator. Sharon Stone apparently owned a house up the hill from where I first rented a room in Uptown. So there's these three main locations in Sedona. Uptown has a lot of the stores and a lot of the very wealthy houses. You've got West Sedona, where there's a lot of the services, like the post office and the school, and that's where a lot of my actual informants lived because it's a lot cheaper. And then you've got the village of Oak Creek, which is a, where a lot of retirees live. Because it's it's a good place. There's this phenomenon in America of snowbirds, of people who, once they retire, they go live somewhere sunny for the winter. And then for the hot months, which are very, very hot, uh, they go back up north to like Michigan or Canada or wherever mm. they're from. So there's a lot of snowbirds in Sedona. So as a town... It's, it's quite, I know, it's quite typical of small town America in lots of ways. 
um, you know, there's, you know, the older people own all the property and the young people work all the jobs but don't really have any resources. And then, then you've also got these things called vortexes. So there's two ways of talking about the vortexes. Either you can say that there's four around town, which are all these kind of very prominent red rock formations. There are lots of other red rock formations, and they have all kinds of names. There's one called Snoopy because it looks a bit like Snoopy lying on his back. I never quite saw it myself, but, you know, people people told me it looked like Snoopy anyway. And there's Cathedral Rock, which apparently used to be called Court Rock, and there's another rock called Courthouse Rock, and they got mixed up, and then suddenly Cathedral Rock became Cathedral Rock instead. So there's this kind of, like, historicity to the naming of the rocks, but they're also given this kind of eternal, like almost like Eliadian essence of the divine where people say, no, they had this special energy. The Native Americans knew about this special energy. That's why it was sacred to the local tribes that lived here. And the reason why people now say there are vortexes there is because this energy emanates from the earth. You know, it's a real part of the landscape. And that's why we're drawn there. Um, so people do move there to go have spiritual experiences, you know, people will go on vacations and, you know, there's a lot of services there that cater to this market as well. You know, you can get your aura photograph taken, you can go on a vortex tour, you can have a shaman take you around to power spots and do kind of rituals with you. So there is a, a market to it, but there's also people who genuinely engage with these practices and move there because they feel like it's a part of their spiritual path to move there. They would tell me that they were called to Sedona, that the energy drew them in. And then if they had to leave, it was the energy that spat them out. Um, and some people would say, it was quite a common discourse in Sedona that the energy could get so intense, it could, you know, literally drive you crazy. Like there, were, there was a story of a woman who said that she had to leave because the red rocks were screaming at her. Um, so the you know there's this idea that it's this very special place it's this very sacred place but it's also incredibly intense and it can be very difficult to live there both materially and spiritually if that's how hmm. you kind of experience your your world so that's an excellent um scene setting for the i guess the milieu and the spiritual milieu in Sedona but let's let's focus in then upon the role of nature um, in this context and these practices, and then also on gender. I imagine that you can probably talk about those well at the same time. Yeah, so nature is really prominent. I mean, it would be prominent even among the people who didn't kind of in any way engage in New Age spirituality. Another thing I should probably say here is no one actually called themselves a New Ager in Sedona. Um, there was, there's, you know, there's a shop called Center for the New Age, which has psychics where you can go pay for readings. But if you ask people, are you a New Ager? They would say no. They call it spirituality and they're quite comfortable with the, that word. They don't really care about all our disciplinary arguments about what's spirituality and what's religion and what's not. They just say, yes, I'm spiritual or yes, I, you know, I'm interested in spirituality, but they would never really call themselves New Agers unless they were trying to sell a certain product and it helped them as a label. Um, so the people who were engaged in some way in spirituality were very often identified nature as a, a very prominent source of what they would consider kind of spiritual practice, but also just the energy of the place, you know. So for, for some people, being spiritual literally just entailed of going for hikes amongst the rocks, maybe meditating a bit, but just being close to the earth and simply moving to Sedona was seen as a way of kind of getting closer to nature because it was this place of like of astounding natural beauty. It was kind of seen as 
embodying nature in a very visceral way. And you've also got other locations close by, like the Grand Canyon, like the San Francisco Peaks, which is a large uh, series of mountains that were also considered sacred and kind of also embodied this idea of kind of like big nature in a, a similar way. And so when it comes to gender, the experience of nature as sacred was very often feminized in the way they spoke about it. So, you know, obviously Mother Earth is quite a common one. Mm. So, but in Sedona, they would also talk about Father Sky. So there's this idea of gender emerging there already. So you've got Mother Earth on the one hand, but the complement is Father Sky. They would talk about the divine feminine and the complement is the divine masculine. Now these are energies and the shift that, you know, was once called the new age, but now they talk about it much more in terms of like, they call it the ascension, they call it the shift, they call it the new paradigm. This is when the old male energies kind of wither away and die and are supplanted with a dominance of the divine feminine. So the change that is called new age spirituality, that change is a shift from something that's coded as male to something that's coded as female. And there are all kinds of associations with this gender binary. So male is aggressive, competitive, you know, men start wars, men destroy the planet, they have an extractive relationship to nature. Whereas the female principle is cooperative, it's, you know, it's very in tune with emotions, and it's very connected to nature and celebrating the earth and being part of the earth. And so something that came up in the panel today was this, these are very, very old associations between women and nature, but the way that association is framed is not always the same in all times and all places. Mm. Um, so I thought one thing interesting that came up this morning was this idea of uh, the feminine being associated with death, um, which made total sense to me. Um, but that's not there in the context in Sedona. Women are about life. They're about producing life. Mm. You know, it's, you know, the feminine is the mother, as the nurturer, as the caregiver. You know, this is the divine feminine principle, you know. Um, so it's this very kind of starkly coded gender binary. And it doesn't really change anything from what are the, you know, the kind of general gender associations in American society more generally, it just inverts it and says that the feminine is better than the masculine. And, you know, basically, it's not even that women should be in charge. It's just that everyone should embrace the feminine within them. And that, you know, that complementarity is part of the way that we will progress spiritually and socially. Um, but it doesn't really lend itself to any sense of action. And this is where we kind of come back to this idea that eco-spirituality is not the same as environmentalism. My informants generally weren't in any way engaged in environmental politics. They didn't really do anything that could be seen as like particularly environmentally friendly. And in fact, in the whole uh, kind of cosmology of the shift or the ascension, it's happening anyway. And the way it happens is by everyone working on their spiritual practice. It doesn't happen by you going on mm. protests or you switching to an electric car or whatever. It happens by you sitting at home and meditating. Now, from another perspective, you could see how that doesn't help the environment at all. In fact, it breeds a certain passivity to social action and means that these people are going along with the same kind of actions that are harming the planet. For example, driving 
cars, which release a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, carbon mm. monoxide and all other greenhouse gases. So, you know, there's no sense of social action or social change. It's all very inward. And then everyone going on their spiritual path together cumulatively creates the change. It's like the mm. hundred mo- hundredth monkey idea. Do you know what that is? Go for it. Well, <laughs> it's this like discredited idea from bioanth biological anthropology yeah, yeah. that if like a certain number of monkeys say a hundred learn a specific skill it will go spread out through the rest of that group of monkeys mm. kind of by like collective consciousness so that's very dominant amongst uh at least my informants in sedona that you know in fact it was detrimental to go out and do political action i had this one informant who used to be very involved in kind of ngos and like going to other countries and trying to do development work and then she said that all her protest work and all of her social action work had actually been making things worse because she was so focused on the negativity of these situations and instead she should you know stay in america and you know work on her spiritual path and you know she did various kind of workshops and she was very much engaged in this like embracing the divine feminine herself but that seemed to basically involve going on these exclusive retreats to places like um oh like these caribbean islands like the bahamas or like places in aspen colorado and getting women who have very high paying jobs to go on them so they could go help explore their divine feminine and you know, work on their you know consciousness evolution and their inner conscious entrepreneur and, you know, by doing that, she would help create way more positive action than she ever did working in NGOs. And, you know, so again, you can kind of shift the perspective a lot and go, you know, how is it helping by you mm. kind of creating all these spaces where everyone flies into these luxury resorts, has a lovely holiday, goes home, continues doing capitalism every day. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even £1 a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Yes, yeah, so you've, you've done a good job there, I think, of painting the, the relationship or lack of relationship potentially between environmentalism and eco-spirituality and sort of carving out what we're meaning there but um and we've spoken about the entanglements of gender and constructions of nature but how are the two i guess entangled these two the the sort of eco-spirituality on the one hand and this gendering of nature like are there some specific examples you can maybe give of that kind of entanglement of the two um so how is eco-spirituality entangled in gender? Well, I think it's very much in this idea of associating nature with the feminine and that those both of those things are given a positive valence regardless of what those actions actually are. So I could get very frustrated, in fact, in the field with people talking about things that are nature and natural as if that means it's good for human health. So to take an example... 
My informants generally like to get water from the spring in Sedona because it came directly from the earth, and therefore it was good for them, right? But so then it actually transpired that that stream had a very high level of naturally occurring uh, anthrax, which is not good for human health. Now, that's entirely natural in the sense that humans didn't put it there. It was part of the composition mm. of the soil and the water in that area. Susanna has a correction to make to what she just said. Yes, so what I meant to say instead of anthrax was in fact arsenic. Arsenic is naturally occurring in water, not anthrax. Back to the interview. <laughs> and I think it, that linked quite also with the way this kind of divine feminine principle got expressed in practice. Um, so in my paper today, I talked about the work of an artist who she did this whole series of paintings on the goddess and it was all kind of different instantiations of what she called the goddess energy and it was all like you know faces of women growing out of trees for example and there's mm -hmm. this wonderful one called blue corn woman which she attached to a, a re-evaluation of hopi myths that had something to do with them surviving atlantis because they listened to the earth and knew when to go underground and therefore they they survived the cataclysm that destroyed atlantis um, so she had a whole series of paintings in this way. And in person, she was very much kind of, she would always talk about, you know, the goddess and how that was kind of how she tried to live her life was in, you know, in celebration of this divine feminine principle. And then this, this led to this very kind of difficult lifestyle that she had where she didn't really want to go out and work because emotionally that didn't suit her. She wanted to do art because that's how she expressed her soul. Um, but that meant she basically relied on men who were variously infatuated with her to support her financially. And she also had a fairly considerable drinking problem. And she drove her car while drunk. She had a blood alcohol level of like 0.3. Now, the legal limit is like 0 0.8 or 0 0.08 or something. So she was well over the legal limit. And she drove it into a fire station and wrecked the front of a fire station. And then afterwards, she was arrested, you know, processed, let out. She blamed the fact that she had experienced childhood trauma and that it wasn't that she was drunk, it's that she was having a dissociative state at the time caused by her childhood trauma. So she then, like, kind of refused to come to court many times. She kept firing her lawyer. And th this was, a, like, she all she had to serve was a 90-day prison sentence and kind of go on her way. And it took her three years to come to terms and just do that. So why is this related to the divine feminine and nature? So it was this kind of like this association between her emotions and her emotional state and her idea of herself as a woman and her idea of what is natural and what is natural for her led to this lifestyle that was for on one hand quite passive and on the other hand not accepting any sense of social responsibility for her own actions because she wasn't responsible because she had experienced this trauma and therefore her emotions were such that she just had to express them. And I felt that that was actually quite problematic because on the one hand you've got eco-spirituality that's seen as kind of in a way, it's seen as inevitable, so you don't have to do anything. So that breeds passivity on a social level. And then on a personal level, it leads to a lack of accountability in your personal actions, or it can, mm -hmm. because you overvalue your own emotions to the extent that the consequences of your emotional states are not dealt with. 
Um, at least I felt that was the, in that case. Mm-hmm. You know, I obviously I knew other people who kind of in different ways kind of were interested in kind of the divine feminine aspects of spirituality and they did quite, you know, productive things. So I don't want to try and claim that everyone was like this. I'm saying that this is kind of like the worst excesses of this kind of association mm. could lead to this kind of, si- this kind of situation. Um, I knew someone else, for example, who, you know, felt that the divine feminine principle was how she should express her spirituality. And she held ghost, goddess wisdom workshops and they were very fun and that was fine. <laughs> um, but again, I felt like there was this kind of very simplistic association between femininity, nature, and kind of the sense of, of goodness or like th- that it was somehow inherent and you would just know as a woman and by being natural that mm. the right thing to do. And I don't think that that was always the case. Excellent. So we're getting on in time and I know that I've got two more questions that I want to ask you before we get to the what's next on the agenda for your research, for Mm -hmm. research in this field. One is you've just been speaking there a bit to this, like what are the, I guess, practical, social, political, um, real world, for want of a better term, effects of this gendering Mm -hmm. of nature um, in your research experience okay why does it matter why does it matter i think it matters because we are in a time in uh in our society when actually we really need to pay a great deal of attention to the environment and to ecology not for the sake of the planet or the environment in some disconnected way because they will actually keep on going What's happening in terms of climate change is the erosion of the habitability of the planet for humans. You know, we're destroying our own ecosystem and we will be the ones that suffer for that eventually. So, and I think any of these discourses that kind of separate off nature, the environment as something separate from humans are causing harm. And I think this particular kind of eco-spirituality in terms of, you know, the new age or whatever you want to call it, is quite detrimental in terms of ecology because it doesn't put any kind of real-world action to the forefront. I think meditating is great, but I also think you need to accompany it with some form of action that will make your goals happen instead of sitting back and thinking that it will just happen inevitably. It's kind of like prayer is great, but you should also get out there and do something about the social goals you want to achieve that go along with your religious ethics. So what I see a bit too much in this particular form is that, you know, nature will just take care of these things, that somehow Mother Nature is this caring, powerful being, and that that means it's all going to be okay for humans. And that's not the case. If we continue destroying our ecosystem, humans will not continue living. You know, society will not continue the planet will find a way to go on because it's the planet. <laughs> so that's why in real world terms, I think it matters. I think I'm being like maybe a bit more evaluative and normative than I would ever be if I wrote any of this down right now. So that no, makes, that's okay. You is, know. That, is that okay? Yeah. Because I really actually feel like that this is, this is the defining important issue of our time. And if you're not paying attention to it, if you're not doing something mm. useful about it, whatever that may be, even if it is just your individual action, 
then actually you're not helping and you're making things worse. And just to riff on that normativity a little bit, I can imagine that actually, yeah, part of this discourse enables people, like people might feel that they are doing something. Yes, no, they absolutely think they're doing. They think they're the only ones that are doing something because they're meditating and expecting the shift any moment through kind of enhancing themselves spiritually, which Look, from a religious studies perspective, it's fascinating. I could sit and describe the cosmology all day. But if we're going to talk about real-world effects and real-world problems, that's not helping. Mm, exactly. Um, should also just acknowledge that we, we've, only, we've been speaking in terms of gender binaries here, but that is predominantly what's going on in the, the discourse. It is, it's, it's a, we're, we're talking in binaries. <laughs> yeah, so I very much just said maybe we yeah. should flag that up. I'm not saying I believe that these gender binaries are yeah. natural. I'm saying that in this context, my informants naturalize these gender binaries. There is male and there is female. They don't really think about any other formation of gender, and that's the way they see it. I'm mm. not saying that normatively that's correct. Exactly. Um, so... This is the Religious Studies Project. We've been sort of floating around the topic of religion and spirituality here, but could we, we probably could have described a lot of this stuff that was going on without um, needing to invoke um, those terms. So I'm just wondering what the role, um, what role these terms are playing or um, if there's maybe sort of other dynamics that could explain away um, this gendering of nature. Yeah, so I'm, I think I'm probably going to say something that will annoy lots of people who do religious studies. But I think that if we're going to talk about spirituality, for me it means a very specific thing, which is this form of spirituality that was once called New Age. And it has a, it has a specific cosmology. And if you go out there amongst people who actually engage in these practices, you can see it coming through. And, you know, I always say the basic tenet of it is that everything is energy and all energy vibrates at a specific frequency. So I think that spirituality, so defined, is kind of one of the big religious shifts that we're currently going through. Spirituality isn't just something that happens in Sedona. It's not something that just happens in America. It's a global phenomenon. One of the things that happens to me a lot as I talk about my work, especially to the anthropologists, which is my background, they'll say, oh, yeah, people I know in, you know, Palestine are really into that because it gets them over sectarian conflicts. People in Indonesia that I work with are really interested in right that, that right now as a form of healing. And it is spread around the globe and it is offering people a way of doing religion that is not part of their typical traditional organized religions and for some people that's just like a breath of fresh air for some people that's quite literally a lifesaver you know that they don't have to engage in these old sectarian conflicts anymore that they can create a new way forward without becoming secular because a lot of people don't actually want that they want to still engage with some kind of meta empirical reality whatever you want to use as a term for it so i think that spirituality is a form of religion and it's one of the growing forms of religion and if you want to pay attention to the trends in religion now as it's actually lived and experienced on a daily basis, then you should really pay attention to spirituality. And especially because it doesn't really show up on, you know, stats and censuses because mm -hmm. there's not really a box to tick for it. And also people who are into spirituality really don't like definitions. So they, don't, they wouldn't really call themselves 
spiritual in that sense. But if you talk to them about what they do, if you ask them if they're interested in spirituality, they will say yes, and suddenly they'll come up with all of these fascinating things that they do. So I think it's something that has to be studied uh, empirically uh, through qualitative research, and I think it's something that is probably a lot more prevalent than we realize because it doesn't show up on these kind of top-down measurements that a lot of uh, a lot of scholarship can rely on. Not all of it, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had a whirlwind here, and of course um, we will point listeners to these, these these forthcoming works. And but you're working on this. Namesh. Namesh. Project yes. just now. I mean, so that's probably <laughs> what you're going to say is, is what's next for you. But um, do you want to say a little bit about your work there and also perhaps just about any, anything you would like to see happening in this field of, of gender, spirituality, nature? Um, yeah, okay. So Namesh is one of these ERC projects, which I'm kind of discovering that they all have these kind of, you know, acronyms for what they're called it's from narrating the mesh which is from uh eco theorist timothy morton's work so the mesh is his idea for how everything is interconnected and our project is looking at narratives of the interconnection of humans non-humans and climate so the rest of the people on the project are looking at narratives from literary fiction which is why i'm in the literary studies department and i'm looking at personal narratives so what i've been doing is taking interviews and doing some short bits of field work amongst groups of people who are differently positioned in the wider climate change discourse. So that's climate scientists, uh, kind of radical environmentalists or kind of eco-philosophers, and also people who do not accept that climate change is happening, or if there is that they do not accept the human role in climate change, so what you might call deniers or climate change skeptics. So that's my current work. I'm kind of in the middle of doing the field work for that. I was in Sweden two weeks ago um, amongst people who uh, basically uh, see the world as ending and that we're kind of living through this kind of destruction of the world and how do we kind of create a new culture. Um, so that's what I've been doing most recently. In terms of gender, nature, and eco-spirituality. I think it's a really fascinating field, and it's one that I think you can kind of bring together a lot of diverse studies from antiquity right through to contemporary work to kind of look at this, you know, to kind of question, you know, how is nature gendered? What do we mean by kind of goddess spirituality? And I think it is something that's quite neglected. I think it's something that kind of for a long time got relegated to that kind of women's studies area mm -hmm. of religious studies and a lot of people don't see it as particularly interesting or relevant. But I think it's one of those things if people actually start looking at and studying, it will come up more and more as a really kind of relevant and important part of kind of everyday religious practice for a, a very widely placed uh, diversity of people in different traditions and different kind of historical periods and times. And I'm sure there's a lot more that we could get into just there now, but we have run out of time, listeners. That was an excellent interview, Susanna Crockford, uh, and we're looking forward to um, all the interest that you will have piqued and to hearing more um, from this this developing project that you've got. Namesh. Namesh. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> it does sound like a little farewell, doesn't it? Namesh. Namesh. <laughs> Thanks so much to Chris and Susanna um, for a very interesting interview indeed. Yes, thanks, David. It was great to record that um, at the EASR. So that's the first 
first of many interviews coming from there, which were all recorded on Moritz Klenk's excellent tech. And we should say that the EASR are now um, um, being very supportive. But uh, from next year on, we're going to have an ESR bursary um, for RSP correspondents, which is going to be fantastic. It should ensure many more European voices on the RSP. Absolutely. Um, making sure both interviewers and interviewees uh, from the continent. Um, we are not going along with the Brexit uh, kind of situation. As you can see, we are actively promoting our links with Europe. Next week's interview is, I think it's another one with Chris. It is indeed. Uh, but this time, yes, this one, and this one's from North America. Uh, tell us a little bit about this, Chris. It's an interview I recorded with Brian Collins and Kristen Toby, and we talked about um, popular uh, culture representations of religious studies. So, you know, um, Friends has its... Uh, paleontologist in Ross Geller. We have uh, archaeology represented by Indiana Jones, but uh, where do people turn to for representations of religious studies as a field in popular culture? And and although this is maybe quite a, a fun question to ask, and we discuss lots of things such as, uh, you know, Robert Langdon and uh, the um, Dan Brown books and whatnot as a potential um, representation, it's quite important how our field is um, represented out there because it's what it's the baggage that people bring um, to our work and to their study. Absolutely. So come back next week for that interview and find out exactly what baggage people are smuggling into our field. Um, I think we've smuggled enough baggage in this week. Uh, let's uh, just wrap up, Chris. Do you want to say anything to the listeners from Oslo? Um, well, I, I know there's one thing that you probably want me to say, um, which I will say in a moment, but just uh, to throw out that it's been a really nice conference here. It's been organized by the OIREL network. That's uh, E-U-R-E-L. So it's a network that's primarily interested in uh, legal frameworks and how um religion interacts with the state and the law and this conference was particularly about sort of non-religion and the secular and all that and how, how that interacts with and is constructed by the law so it's been excellent to reconnect with some colleagues and present my work uh, particular shout out to Jitemu Tyra uh, who's uh, I can see having his sandwich down in the other room so I'm going to go back and join him there what did you want me to say though dude? Ah, well, you know what I wanted you to say. It's the same thing we say every week, Chris. Thanks for listening. That's the one. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.